Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Simon Lester. I'm the Associate Director of the Herbert Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. These last almost four years of trade policy have been quite a ride. Uh, we were all forced to re-argue points of economics and law that we thought were settled or had been long forgotten. We were always on edge looking for the, the latest tweet, trying to make sense of it. Tariffs and threats of tariffs proliferated. International economic agreements and institutions were called into question. But now with the election of, uh, of Joe Biden, we are moving on. But moving on to what? Where exactly is US trade policy headed now? And that's what we're going to talk about today. It, it's just nine days after the election, so it's still early, but it's never too early to start these conversations. I'm happy to have with me today three excellent panelists to talk about the future of US trade policy. All of them have experience with trade policy making from the inside at various offices within the US government, and I think we'll all benefit from their insights. We have with us uh, Haley Craig of Facebook and the R Street Institute, who was until recently a legislative assistant with Senator Pat Toomey. We have Nassim Fussell, a partner at Holland and Knight, who has been trade counsel with the House Ways and Means Committee and most recently was chief international trade counsel at the Senate Finance Committee. And we have Michael Smart, uh, managing director at Rock Creek Global Advisors, who previously was international trade counsel for the Senate Finance Committee and also Director for International Trade and Investment at the National Security Council. What we're going to do uh, instead of formal presentations is discuss a series of questions that I'll, I'll put to the panel. We could probably talk all day. Uh, we're going to try to limit it to about 30 to 45 minutes, then open, uh, open it up to uh, questions from the audience. Now, as we go along, I'll keep an eye out for your social media questions um, and try to work them in when they overlap with questions uh, that I had in mind to ask. So if you're watching on the web, on Twitter, Facebook, on, on YouTube, uh, send us your questions with the hashtag uh, Cato Trade. Um, if we can't get to them during our, Q, our you know, designed Q&A, then I'll, I'll, I'll try to uh, get to as many as I can at the end. So with that, let's get into it. Uh, first question, we're going to get to the Biden administration in a minute, and that's the focus of the talk. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about the last days of the Trump administration. Trump won't leave office until January 20th. That's more than two solid months. A lot can happen in that time. So if my, question, my question for the panelists is, how active do you expect the Trump administration will be in the coming months? What kinds of things might they do? To, to, to take one example, um, the legislation, legislation authorizing the, the generalized system of preferences, which, which involves lower tariffs for developing countries, expires on December 31st. Will the Trump administration push for renewal or let it expire? And then more generally, will we have any last gasp tariff excitement? So I'll, I'll start uh, with Haley. Uh, Haley, let us know your, your thoughts on, on, on any of those issues. Great, thanks, Simon. Um, and just to clarify, I'm not speaking on behalf of my current employer, but on behalf of the R Street Institute today. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, what we've seen over the past four years has been a pretty turbulent trade policy. Um, on behalf of the Trump administration with a lot of uh, just general uncertainty. Um, Simon, you mentioned, right, a lot of trade policy that has been done by tweet. Um, I think it's hard to prognosticate exactly on what the Trump administration will prioritize in the coming two months. Uh, with respect to GSP specifically, uh, the Trump administration has been, I wouldn't say outwardly hostile to GSP, but uh, the president has used his authority to revoke GSP uh, for certain countries um, like India. And so even though GSP is up for reauthorization at the end of the year, I wouldn't expect to see the Trump administration prioritizing that. I think you could see a legislative push for GSP reauthorization um, in a funding bill, but I would be surprised if that were a priority for the White House specifically. Um, I, would, I do want to highlight a few potential tariff issues that could come up in the next two months. Um, the first is Section 232, which are the national security tariffs that the Trump administration has used to um, put tariffs on steel and aluminum and to threaten uh, tariffs on autos. We actually have three Section 232 investigations that are currently ongoing at the Department of Commerce. 
Um, and I'm I, in my head, I call them sleeper 232s. But essentially, if commerce does have an affirmative finding in any of these three investigations, um, one is into mobile cranes, another is into vanadium, and a third is into grain oriented electrical steel. If commerce does find um, a determination of a national security threat in either of those three Section 232 cases, the president could basically impose tariffs immediately by proclamation, as he has done with steel and aluminum. And it should be noted that the report on grain-oriented electrical steel is actually with the White House. So I would not be shocked if we saw a new Section 232 in the next uh, two months. Um, the second issue that I would highlight on the tariff front is Section 301, which, are, which is the tariff authority um, that the president has used to impose tariffs on China. Um, the U.S. did reach a phase one agreement with China in January 20 uh, this, of this year, but uh, China is not on track to meet its purchase targets under that deal. Um, so I don't know if we would see any additional posturing against China um, on the tariff front because China has not met those purchase requirements. Um, and in addition, comments actually closed today on a USTR Section 301 investigation into Vietnamese currency manipulation, even though the Treasury Department has not labeled Vietnam as a currency manipulator. Um, if uh, that invest, I don't know exactly the timeline for that investigation, but in theory, it could provide a statutory basis for tariffs on Vietnamese goods. So I don't, again, I, I don't know for sure what the Trump administration is going to prioritize in its final two months, but there certainly are um, tariff issues that are pending um, and authorities that have not been used yet by the Trump administration. Um, and so I think we could see potentially more tariffs, which the president, you know, has stated he, you know, he is a tariff man. He likes tariffs and he finds, you know, them to be a good tool policymaking. Yes, thank you, Haley. Uh, for those of us who, those of you who might have thought, well, we're done with the tariffs now, that was a nice wake up call. I appreciate that. Uh, Nassim, do you want to uh, weigh in on, on this? Sure. Thank you, Simon, and good to be with you all today. Um, I would expect in, in the months before us um, that the Trump administration is likely to prioritize China in, in any further actions it takes. Uh, China seems to be a, a, a bit of uh, a legacy item or how, how the Trump administration may be looking at, you know, the policy moves they've made, uh, tariffs and otherwise, over the last four years. So I would look to see whether they take any uh, measures on China. So I would agree with Haley that there may be something coming down the pike there, although, uh, full disclosure, I have not heard any specifics on that. Uh, Given where they've been, though, um, with with such a focus on China, on on trade issues, and otherwise, that that there may be something that that we should expect to see coming in the next few months. Given that they are very much, um, they have been very much prioritizing uh, China policy, uh, and and may want to leave treating this um, as a legacy item, specifically uh, on trade. Uh, as Haley noted, the um, purchase commitments have not been met. Uh, the Chinese are, are not on track to do so, uh, due in large part to COVID, of course, which takes me to another area uh, where we may see some executive orders from the Trump administration. Uh, there is the August 6th executive order on essential medicines that uh, directed USTR to review our trade agreements and our, our Procurement chapters in particular, um, there doesn't seem to be uh, any sign right now of something coming out of USTR uh, in terms of that review. Uh, I'm not aware of any specific steps planned um, and also not entirely clear what the legality of such steps would be. Uh, realistically, I think any steps taken on this front would take a lot more time than uh, the administration has remaining uh, to, to accomplish meaningfully something in this space. Uh, but certainly given the focus on COVID, the focus on the economy, and I'm expecting a desire to go out demonstrating that they did what they could to, to keep the economy strong. 
um, there may be something in this space um, that has a focus on bolstering um, our, our domestic uh, manufacturing capabilities and, and bolstering um, US companies. On GSP, I don't expect the Trump administration to come out at this point in support of a GSP renewal. It has not been clear to me in, in the months leading up to now that they, they actively support GSP renewal. Um, they might have been thinking about potential criteria renewal, uh, but to my knowledge, there have not been the uh, engaged conversations between the Hill and the administration necessary in order to accomplish something of that magnitude before the expiration of the current GSP. Uh, with that, I'd love to hear if Michael has anything to add on this. Yeah, thank you, Nassim. Uh, Mike, do you, do you want to weigh in on uh, what the Trump administration is up to, will be up to? Just one addition to the tariff watch list. Um, remember that we already have a concluded 301 investigation of the French digital services tax that resulted in affirmative determination, uh, a list of remedies that was just delayed for six months um, in over, over the summer. So if nothing happens, tariffs on French imports will increase on, on January 1. Second point, also on DST, recall that there were then a second batch of investigations of other digital services taxes also launched. If those uh, potentially could be concluded quickly, move to the remedy phase, uh, and then we might see some additional tariffs um, in that area as well. And then I would just underscore Nassim's point to say that I would actually be surprised if there were not further actions against China at least the addition of other Chinese companies to the so-called entity list, perhaps the sanctioning of other Chinese uh, government officials, particularly in light of recent events in Hong Kong. Great, Th thank you, Mike. Okay, now let's turn to the, the Biden administration, uh, the upcoming Biden administration, which is what we're here to talk about today. Before we get into the, the technical points that the trade policy wants to know and love, let's talk about just sort of some big picture issues. During the campaign, Biden talked like an economic nationalist at times with his emphasis on Buy America and government procurement. And with the pand pandemic, there have been calls to rethink supply chains and, and make more products in the United States. So my question is, given the political, economic, and public health circumstances that we find ourselves in, to what extent do you think the Biden administration will break away from the Trump administration's economic nationalism? Uh, I'll put that to Nassim first. I actually think that uh, Vice President Biden, President-elect Biden, and uh, President Trump have sounded fairly similar um, when, when discussing this particular issue uh, on the campaign trail. Um, I, I think it's also interesting that there is a, a general sense in Congress that yeah, my perspective is that this seems to be fairly bipartisan, that we need to be able to uh, make more here um, and, and be prepared to take care of ourselves uh, should something like this happen again. Um, so I think there's gonna continue to be focus on this. I, I do expect Biden to come in and uh, to some degree pick up where uh, Trump administration uh, will leave off on this. And um, I expect that there will be support in Congress for continuing this conversation. Uh, there was uh, a bipartisan request made uh, in the summer by the, the chairs of the House Ways and Means and Senate Finance Committees um, and the House Ways and Means ranking member to the ITC to continue studying uh, the impact of, of tariffs on, um, on the uh, products, essential uh, health products needed uh, to weather the pandemic and beyond. And, uh, you know, I think that that shows that this is bipartisan. Uh, there, there will be an interest um, among members of Congress to work with uh, President-elect Biden um, if he comes in and wants to look at this. Uh, thanks, Nassim. Uh, Mike, do you, do you want to weigh in on this one? Yeah, some continuity, some change. Um, if you think of economic nationalism as uh, the threat of tariffs, the threat of sanctions, or just kind of jawboning uh, as a way to induce companies uh, to shift investment from overseas to the United States, 
I just don't think that will be in in, in Joe Biden's um, playbook. So I, I mean, I think that's one um, area of change. Uh, by American, I, I see a lot of continuity. Uh, I, I mean, as you all know, uh, Vice President Biden, President-elect Biden, has proposed major new spending initiatives um, that would be subject, it seems, to stricter uh, by American requirements um, than we have today. And in some of his campaign proposals, has said explicitly uh, his ideas about the reach of those requirements uh, will require a renegotiation uh, of uh, international uh, procurement agreements, including the WTO government procurement agreement um, and of our FTA. So I, I think that's a very strong signal that with these strong domestic investments will come uh, it will come with more uh, local content strings um, uh, attached. Um, another area of similarity where where I think um, President-elect Biden might go further uh, would be on tax policy. I mean, in the tax reform under the Trump administration, you know, you had kind of a shift toward a more territorial uh, uh, regime, um, uh, but that was also accompanied by, you know, some minimum global tax requirements, et cetera. I think if you listen to uh, President-elect on the campaign trail, as well as his materials, you can see how he wants to use tax policy to drive more investment um, in the United States. So, so I think that um, is an area of continuity where we might actually see uh, more action. And then lastly, I think is, um, you know, what, what do we do in our, in our trade agreements and very specifically on, on rules of origin? Do we use rules of origin to try to drive investment into the United States? Um, that is, you know, the example of that is, is, is the USMCA with, with very, very strict requirements. Um, uh, and uh, will, will Vice President Biden choose to pursue those in, in agreements with the UK or, or other countries he might negotiate with? I, I think that one is more of an open question. Great. Uh, thank you, Mike. Haley, do you, do you have anything to add on this one? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of piggybacking off of uh, Mike's comments about rules of origin, I think one thing to watch here is, um, you know, we talk about provisions like stricter rules of origin um, as if, you know, they will drive investment and jobs back to United States. But I think it's worth actually looking at the data and um, at various economic factors to see if that's actually true. Um, so, for example, um, you know, Mike cited the USMCA auto rules of origin, which are extremely strict um, by the standards of any trade agreement. Um, and I think there's, you know, an argument to be made that over time, could those rules of origin be so cumbersome on U.S. companies that they would uh, be incentivized to actually just pull manufacturing out of the U.S. and pay the import tariff on autos, which is only 2.5 percent with the exception of light trucks. Um, so I think it's worth also just making sure that any of these um, policies that the administration does choose to pursue actually do achieve their stated ends. And I don't think we've seen that um, with the Trump administration's policies. Um, and then finally, when it comes to Buy American, uh, obviously, a lot of this discussion has intersected with the global pandemic. Um, but there's also been a number of misleading figures out there about the uh, over-reliance of the United States on foreign medical supply chains. And I think Nassim's probably familiar with this because there was a Grassley press release that was uh, like over, you know, misquoted and miscited um, in the press. But uh, Reason did a pretty good debunking of this statistic that was floating around that 80% of U.S. drugs come from China um, when in fact the U.S. imported uh, 115 billion worth of finished pharmaceuticals in 2018, but only 1.5 billion of that came from China. So it's also, you know, I, I, I would also caution, you know, for conservatives <laughs> uh, who may be watching, right, that um, crises like a pandemic should not necessarily be used as a Trojan horse to jam through protectionist economic policies um, that will probably in the end, hurt consumers and disrupt supply chains in an inefficient way. Okay, great. Thanks, Haley. 
let me turn now to some more specific questions. Uh, so here's my first one. Uh, many people are saying, and I am one of these people, that uh, as president, uh, Joe Biden should repair trade relations with allies and lead a joint effort to address China's trade practices. And let's talk about three aspects of that recommendation. One is how would or should he go about re repairing relations with allies? Uh, another is what would a joint effort against China look like? And then the final one is, will this strategy work? So let me turn uh, to you, uh, Mike, uh, first on this one. Yeah, great. Well, I think first off, in terms of repairing relationships with allies, you know, there will be a lot of spillover effects, positive uh, spillover effects for trade policy um, in the actions that President-elect Biden takes in other areas. So, for example, uh, by uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, by uh, looking to re-enter uh, the Iran nuclear uh, agreement. Um, uh, these and other actions, I think, are going to create an atmosphere uh, where cooperation on trade is more likely. But getting to trade specifically, um, I think there are two things. Um, first, uh, we've talked already about the Section 232 national security tariffs on steel and aluminum that apply to allies. Now, the strongest signal uh, uh, President-elect Biden could send would be to simply repeal them, which is, is absolutely within his authority. Um, there are domestic political considerations uh, with that. Uh, those, those tariffs are supported by some steel companies and, and unions and some members of Congress. And so there are other, there are other alternatives. I mean, you could offer kind of NATO allies, Japan and Korea, something like the Canada-Mexico deal, which basically lifts those tariffs, but then uh, creates um, a relatively generous uh, a tariff rate quota. That would be another uh, step that could be taken. So once you have you know, started to repair these relationships, well then what's next? What's the template? How do you deal with China? And for that, I think there actually is work already started that could be uh, built upon. Um, and that I'm referring here to the uh, discussions between the EU, United States, and Japan, so-called trilateral discussions among trade ministers that really fleshed out some pretty interesting ideas uh, for WTO rule reform that would address very specific problems um, in the China market. Uh, I'm thinking especially here of subsidies, uh, basically broadening the scope of the types of subsidies that are prohibited per se, uh, looking at how uh, at the area of actionable subsidies and in and potentially reversing the burden of proof. So it would be on the responding country to show that those subsidies do not distort trade. But the key here is for these three and perhaps other like-minded jurisdictions to get agreement on a set of rules and bring China into that discussion and have them understand uh, that this is a unified approach uh, among uh, market economies, major economies um, in the world. And then, you know, the likelihood of success, well, a huge amount will depend on China. Are they going to accept additional rules or not? I mean, we have to be, um, we have to insist on rules uh, that address the concerns that we have but I think we also probably have to be a little bit more realistic than we have been recently about the degree of change that is likely uh, to happen. So that's how I would see a path forward U.S. working with allies to try to achieve those fundamental objectives on which there's no disagreement, which is important structural reforms in the China market. Thanks, Mike. Uh, I'll turn to, to Haley now on this one. Thanks. Um, yeah, I agree with Mike that um, there is a good deal that, uh, you know, a President Biden could do on his first day in office, actually, to garner goodwill among our trading partners. And I think Mike is right that removing the Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum is a great first step. Um, we actually have those tariffs on almost every single country and trading partner in the world, including small countries like New Zealand that are don't export a ton of steel and aluminum to us, but are nonetheless irked by the fact that the U.S. is treating them essentially as a national security threat. Um, 
there are, as Mike pointed out, domestic political considerations here, um, because there are obviously domestic beneficiaries now of those tariffs, but um, they have uh, created a lot of negative sentiment, I think, towards the U.S. as a trading partner. Um, so I think that would be a good first step. In terms of, you know, dealing with China, uh, there are a number of, uh, I think, uh, remedies, I think, that have been floated out by various uh, trade scholars. I mean, I think one thing you'll hear a lot is the U.S. should rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which does not include China. Um, it's also worth noting that RCEP, which is um, a Pacific Asian Pacific uh, trade agreement that does include China, is going to be signed, I believe, on Sunday. Um, so if the U.S., uh, does want to have any trade influence in that region, I think it would do well to at least re-engage with its allies um, in uh, Asia Pacific. I think uh, another thing just to just put out there uh, that we've learned over the past four years are ways to not deal with China. Um, and it would I think it would behoove the Biden administration to learn some lessons from the Trump administration's approach, which has not really worked. Um, so, Things that I would, uh, you know, not do if I were the Biden administration would be unilateral, a unilateral trade war against China, uh, which hurts U.S. manufacturers because they're importing a lot of inputs from China and then using those inputs to manufacture in the U.S. Also hurts consumers by increasing the costs of goods. Um, and even even if you would buy the argument that, OK, maybe the U.S. consumer isn't, you know, taking on the full burden of the tariff because China is devaluing its currency, uh, it still doesn't matter because the U.S. will be paying more for those goods vis-a-vis -vis other importers in the rest of the world. Um, I also think focusing on trade deficits is probably the wrong way to go. That's how we ended up with a phase one deal with China, the centerpiece of which was a um, $200, or $200 billion purchase agreement. Um, and China, as we've seen, is not even meeting those target commitments. But on top of that, as the Peterson Institute has pointed out, this type of purchase agreement is actually boosting Chinese state-owned enterprises. Um, and as we know, one of the biggest issues in dealing with China is addressing subsidies to these state-owned enterprises. So why would we negotiate a deal that would, in, in effect, give them more power? Um, think two other pieces. Um, Leaving the World Trade Organization would be unwise. I think that goes without saying. That's been floated by some members of Congress. Um, and then also dealing with retaliation by giving massive subsidies to agriculture. Again, these are just you know, negative trade policies that we've seen come out of President Trump's China strategy. And I do think we've learned a lot of lessons from them that should not be repeated in the next administration. Great. Uh, thanks, Haley. Nassim, do you want to weigh in on how to work better with allies and what to do about China? Uh, sure. Thank you. Um, I will uh, cover one piece of this since my colleagues um, touched on quite a bit, but a, a piece of this that I think will be very important um, is the potential ahead of us to work with the EU to, to address China. Um, the EU and Latin America, I would add, um, you know, if we think about ourselves with the EU and with China, we're covering almost all of our trade and almost all of global G GDP. So we have to find a way to work together with common goals with the EU um, when it comes to China. Uh, we certainly have uh, common issues and Mike touched on one area of very positive work that's been started already with the EU and with the Japanese on addressing industrial subsidies. This absolutely has to continue. Um, it, it is an area that is ripe for um, some good positive developments. And I think an area in the US-EU relationship that's uh, quite bright at the moment and uh, I'd like to see uh, President-elect Biden um, really continue with the effort there because it does help to, to really strengthen and forge that relationship with the EU. Um, and touching on the WTO, which Haley mentioned as well, this is an area that uh, provides, I think, a good kickstart for uh, the future Biden administration to help um, 
for the United States to re-engage its leadership at the WTO. I don't think the Biden administration is going to come in and say, oh, we don't have any problems at the WTO. Um, I think that the, the core issues um, that have uh, been brought to the fore by the Trump administration with the WTO were issues that the Obama administration felt as well, and prior to that, uh, the Bush administration, and going even further back. So those issues will remain, uh, but I think that there is a real opportunity for President-elect Biden to come in and, and show some U.S. leadership at the WTO. And that's a really, really smart way to signal to our allies that we want to work with you. I would agree with both my colleagues that uh, Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum, that is an area that is ripe for partnership with our allies. As Haley noted, there are um, some key allies of ours in the security space that have been befuddled um, as to why they have been labeled a national security threat. And they don't even import in great volumes, um, export, I'm sorry, from, from their countries, um, the, the steel and aluminum necessarily. Uh, so there is quite a lot of opportunity, but when it comes to China in particular, I think um, one area I'd really like to see early focus on is um, forging a real partnership with the EU and Latin America, as I noted, I'll just touch on that briefly. The Trump administration in August put out a document on a strategic framework for Latin America in which it pointed out numerous instances throughout the framework that there is opportunity across issues, not just trade, to, to strengthen our ties with Latin America. And one of those areas was to serve as, as, as a partnership and a beacon to together um, address uh, China's growing influence throughout the globe. I think if we are going to do this effectively, we do need to engage more than uh, just our European allies. Um, I think we have key allies in Latin America and, and there are strong relationships there that can be strengthened further. Uh, but if we are really going to address the growing global influence of China, then this needs to be a, a global alliance. Thanks, Nassim. Uh, so I'm, I'm watching the questions come in from, from the audience. And so with apologies to the panel, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and something we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, and Haley already mentioned this, so it sort of builds on what we already talked about. So many people have suggested that a Biden administration should rejoin the TPP. Do you think Biden, the Biden administration will try to do that? If so, when? Um, what would the other TPP parties think about this? How hard will it be to negotiate ourselves back in? And is there a TPP package that can pass Congress? And I'll, I'll start with Haley on, on that one. Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question, Simon. Um, <laughs> I, I will caveat that I was not in um, Congress at the time that the Obama administration <laughs> negotiated TPP. Um, however, I think, you know, there are a few pieces that would need to fall into place in order for something like this to work. And the first piece is actually going to be uh, renewal of trade promotion authority. Um, so the Obama administration uh, requested renewal of TPA, which is the fast track legislation or legislation, basically, that is kind of like a handshake agreement almost between the executive branch and Congress guaranteeing uh, privileged uh, consideration of trade agreements that are negotiated by the executive. Um, that also means that trade agreements can't really be bottled up in committee and must receive a floor vote within a certain amount of days. And it's especially important in the Senate because you don't, under TPA, you would not need 60 votes to approve a trade agreement. Um, given, I think, the political complications around TPP the first time, the Biden administration will certainly need and want TPA as a precursor to get TPP through Congress. Um, the TPA fight is usually a tight one. And then I imagine the TPP fight will be as well. Um, I know, uh, you know, President-elect Biden has said that he would renegotiate aspects of the TPP. So what I'd be curious to see um, is whether or not USMCA um, and the renegotiated pieces that uh, the Democrats put into that agreement become somewhat of a blueprint for the Biden administration when it comes to both TPA and potentially to TPP. So what we're talking about here is potentially stronger rules of origin, including things like mountain poor requirements for steel and stronger labor enforcement mechanisms. Um, there's a pretty unique uh, rapid response labor mechanism 
embedded now in USMCA, which basically uh, allows uh, you know the U.S. essentially to impose tariffs on Mexico if it is not meeting its collective bargaining requirements under the USMCA. Um, given all the focus uh, during the election on climate change issues, I could definitely see environmental provisions being um, a focus for the administration. Also, that's part of the reason that Vice President-elect Harris voted against USMCA when it came to the Senate floor. Um, and then investor state dispute settlement. I don't know how, I know this was also on our discussion list, but um, that is the uh, basically the mechanism that allows aggrieved American investors to have disputes settled in an international um, arbitration setting um, if the if a government discriminates against them. And that was basically stripped out uh, essentially in USMCA by the Trump administration, but it does exist within TPP, I think with the exception of the tobacco industry, but someone should correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, I think those were pretty high hurdles um, for the for a potential Biden administration to renegotiate. So I don't know in practice what this would look like. And maybe Nassim or Mike might have thoughts there on just practicality of something like this. Thanks, Haley. Yeah, well, so let's turn to Nassim and Mike. Nassim, uh, what, what do you think about the prospects for, for the TPP in general and then any of these sub-issues in particular? I think Haley was right to start with the logistical hurdle of TPA's expiration, uh, which uh, happens next summer. Um, that will be that will be a pretty significant logistical hurdle because I don't think it's going to be an easy renewal. I think it is very likely for TPA to lapse and and lapse for a little while at that. But different topic that I won't delve too deeply into now. Um, on TPP, assuming that that there weren't a TPA expiration looming, um, I think that Biden has heard clearly from, from the Democratic Party on this. Of course, there are members in the Democratic Party that, that supported TPP and would likely still support it today. Uh, but, you know, his party's only gotten more progressive since uh, TPP. And I think as a result, um, issues that Haley touched on, uh, chief being labor and environment issues, but a few others as well, would really have to be rehashed before I think uh, President-elect Biden could get the broad support of the Democratic Party that he would need in order to move forward with this. It would also be uh, an enormous and likely time-consuming effort uh, if he did have that support to renegotiate this um, with the other members of the CPTPP. Um, it, it's you know another logistical hurdle there. So not to say that it couldn't be done, but I do question uh, whether it could happen. If, if we look at all of the logistical hurdles, the question of TPA, the question of garnering the support within the Democratic Party on some of these very tough issues that made support for TPP uh, impossible, where does that put us in terms of timing? So um, a pretty big lift, um, but very interested to see um, what signals they show next year. Thanks, Nassim. Uh, Mike, do you do you have you want to weigh in on anything related to the TVP? Just quickly, very unlikely that the U.S. would come back in the short run. I think it's quite likely it will come back in the longer run. Maybe not with exactly the same constellation of countries. Maybe not with the same initials. I just see it as a natural outgrowth of a Biden administration's more affirmative strategy in dealing with China that starts with domestic investment, but also working with allies. And one way to do that is these building blocks of, of, of a trade agreement that might start piecemeal initially, um, but lead to a similar place um, in the end. Great. Okay. Thanks, Mike. So uh, again, I'm looking at the questions coming in and I want to make sure that, that we get to them. So I'm sort of skipping around to the, the questions that the panelists and I had, had, had talked about discussing. So I'm going to go now to the one about the WTO. And, and this came up already briefly. Um, we have two immediate crises on our hand in, involving appointments. Uh, so the U.S. Uh, has been blocking appointments to the appellate body, um, and that has made dispute settlement uh, somewhat less than functional. And the U.S. Is, is currently standing in the way of consensus on a new director general. 
My questions are, will a Biden administration take a more conciliatory approach on these issues? And what might that approach look like? And I'll start with Mike on that. Yeah, um, I think the answer is yes. I think the approach will be more, I would say constructive and engaging um, with, with the WTO. Um, I think sometimes if you look only at the headline, there is a suggestion that where we are now with the WTO and the Trump administration's position in blocking appellate body appointees and now blocking the director general selection is sort of the natural culmination of years and years and years of bipartisan concern about uh, the WTO and some of its rulings. And what I would say is that's, I think, a wild overstatement because there's certainly bipartisan concern about certain decisions made by the appellate body, the identified need for reform, both to the rules and the way that the dispute settlement mechanism works. But I don't think before the present administration, there was ever widespread support for simply shutting down that dispute settlement mechanism. So I would expect um, a Biden administration to re-engage in that conversation. There are uh, reform proposals that have already been elaborated both on how the appellate body should work. And as we talked about earlier, some of the rules that need to be updated, particularly to deal with the challenge of China. And so I, I, I think that you could, um, I'm not saying immediately, uh, but relatively quickly come to an agreement that allows the dispute settlement uh, mechanism to function and to allow uh, a new uh, director general to, to take office. I would expect that to be um, uh, uh, the, the consensus candidate, um, but uh, we'll, we'll find that out, my, my guess is um, in January or February. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Haley, do you want to weigh in on these WTO issues? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Mike's exactly right here. Um, and you know, you were asking earlier about what the what a potential Biden administration could do to, you know, show good faith and reengage with our trading partners and allies. And in addition to removing some of the tariffs put in place by the Trump administration, I think reengaging with the World Trade Organization is a, another really key piece of this puzzle. Um, also, uh, just historically speaking, I think uh, Vice President-elect Biden has been more open about embracing multilateralism than um, perhaps President Trump has been. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he took a more conciliatory approach um, toward resolving some of these issues at the WTO, including the appellate body, um, and the current director general uh, dispute. I mean, it's worth noting that um, there was supposed to be a meeting um, on the director general on November 9th that was postponed indefinitely. And I uh, presume that uh, the WTO is waiting until, a, you know, uh, President like Biden is installed in order to potentially resolve these uh, issues. I would just say like one, fi one final note, it's, um, worth calling out that, um, you know, for some of the flack that conservatives give international institutions, the World Trade Organization uh, does play a pretty critical role in um, strengthening uh, the, you know, economic prospects of most Americans. Um, the WTO does cover 95% of global trade and has 164 member countries. Um, and among you know, the things that are important about the WTO is this guarantee of uh, most favored nation treatment, which means that American exports are able to compete on a level playing field with um, uh, exports from other countries. So, you know, withdrawing from the WTO um, or shunning the WTO is not necessarily in the best interests of the average American. Um, and as far as the appellate body is concerned, the U.S. actually wins 85% of the cases that it brings at the appellate body. Um, we recently won one against China on grain subsidies, and I'm sure there are other examples. So not having a functioning appellate body is really not necessarily in the best interest of the United States. And so I would not be surprised if a Biden administration uh, worked to resolve that impasse. 
Great. Uh, thanks, Haley. Nassim, do you have anything you want to add on, on WTO issues? I, I would just expect the Biden administration to come in and engage um, uh, a bit more actively on reform efforts, including the reform of the appellate body than we've seen from the Trump administration, which has done a really great job of laying out the problems, uh, both procedural and substantive, but we have yet to see the engagement needed to solve these problems. Um, you know, there's been this uh, continued question of uh, put forward by the Trump administration to other WTO members, um, answering the question of why we have gotten to where we've gotten. Well, you know, frankly, that we can spend only so much time on that question. <laughs> and I think that there was a lot of interest among our members, um, some who felt like they were answering that question actively, to hearing from the Trump administration, um, where do we go from here? Now, the answer was never directly uh, provided. Um, however, uh, little indications here and there, I think, have been made by Ambassador Lighthizer that he would be perfectly content uh, if we were to just return to gap dispute settlement. Um, I don't know that that view is shared widely in Congress. As Haley has noted, um, you know, despite some losses, we have actually, as the United States, uh, fared uh, quite well uh, in WTO dispute settlement um, and quite recently at that. Um, so, you know, it's it's something that I expect Biden to come in and, and engage on. However, I'm also going to be looking to see um, who uh, our USTR will be, um, because I do wonder whether uh, um, a more progressive USTR uh, would would take the the same you know, actively engaged uh, stance that I think many uh, Americans, um, certainly, you know, uh, quote unquote, free traders are, are hoping to see with regard to our re-engagement at the WTO. Thanks, Nassim. Uh, so we've got about 13 minutes left and I'm seeing a lot of questions come in. I want to try to, you know, integrate them uh, and address them as much as possible. So I've got a couple that came in related to, to carbon emissions or climate change the environment in general. I'm going to uh, throw a bunch of them out there and you can you know, address the, the, the ones that, that you'd like. Uh, so a Biden administration is almost certain um, to, to have a more active approach to, to fighting climate change. And, and some people uh, assume that that has to mean some sort of uh, carbon border tax or, or carbon tariff. And what I'm wondering is to what extent will that lead to trade conflict? Um, is, is there a possibility that the U.S. and the EU uh, who, who you know, both talk about carbon tariffs or border taxes. There are possible possibility that they would work together on something like that. Is there a possibility that the U.S. and EU would lead an effort to uh, to push for an environmental goods agreement at the WTO that reduces tariffs on uh, clean energy products? And then finally, in this group of of climate change and trade questions, uh, there has been a proposal put out there to use the the infamous Section Two Three Two that we've talked about a lot. Um, as the way to impose a, a carbon tariff. And, you know, full disclosure, I argued against that proposal, uh, but I, I, I want to throw that in there too. So, so if, if anyone wants to weigh in on prospects for uh, trade and climate change and, and tariffs, um, that, that would, I would love to hear it. Maybe I'll start with uh, Haley on this one. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I've written a lot about Section 232, um, which again is the, uh, it's a, it's basically a Cold War era trade statute, as most listeners probably know, um, that uh, allows the president to impose tariffs um, of a pretty unlimited nature on any goods should the Commerce Department conduct an investigation determining that those uh, goods constitute a threat to U.S. national security. Um, I think what, you know, the so the statute has been pretty sparingly used um, since 1962 and the prior to President Trump, the last time a president actually took action under Section 232 was in 1986 when President Reagan used Section 232 to negotiate, uh, I think, export restraint agreements uh, with on uh, foreign machine tools, I believe. Um, so the President Trump's use of Section 232 has been really, really broad and fairly unprecedented um, because it's essentially a carte blanche authority to impose tariffs um, under the guise of national security because 
the statute itself is so broad in how it defines national security. And of course, here's the problem, um, is the Trump administration has really opened Pandora's box in terms of signaling to, I think, you know, both the left and the right that, hey, the president has this unlimited tariff authority to achieve, you know, insert XYZ policy end. And um, I would not be surprised if Democrats took a page from Trump's playbook on uh, tariffs and use that for um, environmental purposes. I think folks probably saw the Lawfare article, and I actually have it in front of me. Um, Trump's trade strategy points the way to a U.S. carbon tariff. And one of the points that the authors of this piece make is Section 232 is such a broad authority that the president can use it for whatever he or she wants, um, as long as the Commerce Department has an affirmative finding. I will say this is not what Section 232 was ever intended to be used for. Um, like I said, in the past, it's been used quite sparingly. Um, there has been litigation against President Trump's use of Section 232 to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court recently denied cert in that litigation. Um, but obviously, we've seen bills in Congress um, from both Senators Portman and, and Toomey uh, to rein in this uh, really like, a, I would say, misuse of tariff authority, which is under the Constitution supposed to rest with Congress. Um, as far as the details of a potential carbon tariff go, I'm not an expert on environmental policy, but I did do a little bit of digging into this after I read this lawfare piece. And my understanding is that it would actually be pretty logistically complex to determine the carbon component of various goods. And what you would end up seeing um, is uh, probably higher penalties on goods like oil and steel and cement. Um, and it's worth noting that a lot of U.S. oil refiners do import heavy oil um, in order to mix with light oil. Uh, again, not being an expert on this, but the TLDR here is that a carbon tariff would penalize certain goods, especially oil, and then consumers would feel that at the pump. So I don't think there's a way that this ends well for the average American consumer. And I think it would probably be a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare uh, to implement in practice. Thanks, Haley. Uh, Mike, do you have any thoughts on the possibility of carbon tariffs or, or tariff cuts on uh, energy products? I do. I think it's really important to remember the whole concept and justification for a carbon border adjustment, which is to impose on imported goods a price on carbon that is comparable to the price encountered by domestic producers of light products, right? And at this time, the United States does not put a price on carbon. We do not have an economy-wide um, uh, carbon tax or cap-and-trade regime. And so uh, too often, I think this is talked about as uh, the carbon border adjustment as something that can be done in isolation. It needs to be combined with a domestic regime, and then it can be justified. You still have all of the complexities and difficulties that Haley just referred to in terms of assessing what were the emissions on that particular imported product, so you're not over or undercharging uh, in terms of the uh, adjustment. Um, now, that said, I think if we are to move to that kind of a carbon mitigation regime, I, I think more likely than not, we will be required to put in place some kind of carbon border adjustment. We tried to do it without such an adjustment in 2009, 2010, and we couldn't get the votes uh, in the Senate to, uh, uh, to move ahead. So uh, that's what I would say on carbon border adjustment. And then on tariff reduction for environmental goods and opening up services markets for environmental services, I think this is absolutely uh, in the strike zone of what a Biden administration would be interested uh, in, negotiate, uh, in negotiating. And remember, um, it is talked about focusing on domestic policy before engaging in significant new comprehensive trade liberalization, but that doesn't rule out earlier action on these kinds of sectoral initiatives. 
Thanks, Mike. Uh, Nassim, do you want to weigh in on, on, on these uh, climate change, trade, carbon tariff issues? Just briefly, on the last piece on uh, environmental disagreement, I think that that is absolutely the way to go. And, you know, I think with a, a you know, if, if we have a Republican majority uh, ultimately in the Senate, um, then it is going to be uh, tough for for Biden to make very sweeping uh, changes on climate. That said, I think that there is a recognition, um, even among many Republicans, conservatives, that, that this is the direction the world is headed in. Um, we talked a lot about EU partnership. I think we're gonna have to forge some common ground as hard as it's going to be with the EU um, uh, when it comes to climate and other partners um, with China. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that uh, an environmental goods agreement it is, is a great way uh, to make positive ground um, and a positive difference in this space. In terms of any big sweeping legislative changes on this front, um, I think it's, it's supposed to be a big lift probably in the next four years, um, certainly in the next two years. That's left. I'll, I'll see what we can get in here. Let me ask a question about uh, the U.S.-U.K. trade talks, because my sense is of all the sort of broad, comprehensive trade negotiations going on, I mean, that's the furthest along. Um, I have trouble as an outsider gauging exactly where we are, um, but at least, you know, the, the reporting suggests we, we've made some good progress. I, I guess my question is, is there any chance that the Trump administration takes these negotiations to the conclusion and then hands them off to a Biden administration to finish up before TPA runs out. Um, this is sort of, yeah, yeah, I'll, just, I'll put it out there like that. So maybe, maybe I'll start with Nassim on that one. So I think even if the Trump administration were to do that, um, th my expectation is that Biden's gonna wanna put his own stamp on this. Um, so that's that's number one. So there, there may be some uh, slight rejiggering, even if it's done and fully baked come January 20th. Um, another component of this is, um, let's say it is done by January 20th, done by the Trump administration. Um, I don't necessarily see uh, Pelosi um, wanting to take up uh, a Trump deal. Again, I think this is different dynamics than, than USMCA presented. Um, so all in all, uh, I, I, I don't know how, how quickly uh, Biden could come in and put his own stamp on it, certainly not before April and before the TPA expiration. Um, that said, I do think the Trump administration is likely going to try to get this um, in as good of a place as possible. Uh, I don't think that they're just going to abandon this, uh, knowing that there is real opportunity here to make strides, there are areas uh, of bipartisan interest, um, and and you know they're working off of uh, bipartisan negotiating objectives uh, at this juncture that I think can continue to guide them for the next few months to get this in as good of a place as possible. Haley, do you have any uh, additional thoughts on that? Any, any different assessment of where things stand and where things might go? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Nassim's uh, instincts here are right. And the only thing I will add is um, as far as reaching a trade agreement with the UK goes, I don't see that as one of the more potentially politically controversial trading partners, um, given that the UK is a pretty similar economy to the US. Um, there's not going to be, I think, uh, too much concern about offshoring, for example, which um, is something you hear when we have, uh, you know, which, you know, was a big concern with NAFTA and also with USMCA. Um, and then even with countries like China is uh, the concern about potential American job loss. Um, I don't see that be, that dynamic necessarily coming into play with the UK. And I do think there's bipartisan support for the UK FTA, or I guess just a trade agreement. Um, and so I don't, I wonder if we would even potentially need TPA. Uh, I think it just depends um, on what is in the, the final deal. And um, like Nassim said, if uh, the Biden administration negotiates aspects of it, what those aspects are. Okay, thanks Haley. Uh, Mike, I think it's uh, up to you to sort of wrap us up here. Any final thoughts on US, UK, FTA prospects? 
Sure. I mean, if the UK can figure out how to avoid a hard border in Ireland, right, which jeopardizes the Good Friday Agreement, um, and can figure out how to give the US at least most of what it's looking for on agriculture, conceivably, you could get this close to the finish line um, early next year, in which case, perhaps you could look at um, uh, an extension of trade promotion authority uh, for the UK agreement alone. I mean, as we did for the Uruguay round in 1993, you had an agreement specific extension. Um, you know, if the transition were working like clockwork, you know, that would be challenging. Obviously, that's not what is happening today. And so count me skeptical that we can get this uh, across the finish line before June 30 next year. Uh, that that sounds reasonable to me as well. Well, with that, I think we have to wrap it up, unfortunately. Uh, I want to thank all the panelists. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. Um, I hope the attendees did as well. Thanks to all the attendees for, for tuning in. Um, we had a lot of questions come in. I, I tried to uh, get as many as I could in there. Uh, the video recording will be available on Cato's webpage later today. Uh, have a good afternoon, everybody. <laughs>